0: How's it going, Uh, Champagne Sharks? This is Trevor. Uh, Go to patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. Become a premium member. $5 a month, you get double the episodes. You get a lot of goodies. And you also get to become a member of the voice and Discord chat server. So you get to talk to other like-minded Champagne Sharks fans. And the other thing is, too, I know... I keep talking about this and I swear I'm not teasing everybody. We're, we're seriously going to do it. Um, we're going to do a call-in show and for the call-in show, uh, you'll need to use a discord. So that's another thing that you'll get by becoming a member. You'll be able to join the discord and actually be one of the callers to do the call-in show. Go to youtube.com forward slash champagne sharks as well. Cause we put up a lot of extra content there with live streaming. Um, We've been focusing the podcast more on ideas and people and having guests and talking kind of more big ideas. But as far as like uh, hot takes on new topics and things that are current in the news, we find it better to use the live stream and stuff because we can be a lot more responsive and interactive. And, you know, with with editing and stuff like that, things get stale fast. You record something about a topic then it takes a couple of days to turn around and the way things work in this hot take media. A lot of things get stale if you don't talk about them right away. So definitely check us out on there. And I think that's pretty much everything. Oh, and email us at champagnestrikes at gmail.com if you just want to give us um, some good feedback. And as always, share with everyone. And and that's the best thing you can do if you can't donate is share. That The more people that listen always helps. And yeah. Without further ado, uh, we have with us Ken
1: joining hey, what's us. What's up, guys? How you guys doing? Um, I guess yeah. yeah we I haven't been on. Well, we, we I haven't recorded in a long time. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Lazarus Lives X3. Um, and yeah, how you guys doing?
0: Um, yeah. And we have with us, uh, I guess Milton Alamari. If you uh, first off, if I pronounce your name wrong, oh, um, you got it. Let me know. I'm you sure you, oh, me you, you me. got it spot oh, on. Great. Spot on. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Uh, Great. And also, if you could just tell us, um, you know, who you are, where we can find you um, and what your interests are. Anything you think is relevant uh, for us to know?
2: Sure. I mean, I publish Black Star News, so people can find that on blackstarnews.com. I also host a weekly radio show on WBAI 99.5 FM, New York, and that's also live stream on WBA.org. And the show is called, not surprisingly, Black Star News Show. And it's every Tuesday at 3 p.m. I also am an adjunct professor of African history at John Jay College, which is part of the City University of New York system. Uh, I've been in journalism, I would say, close to uh, three decades now. Time flies. Uh, Originally, I I was born in Uganda. And then at some point, I wanted to come to the United States in the 1980s to study film. Um, I always loved film when I was a teenager. I always managed to find some money to go see a cinema back uh, in Africa. I did my high school in Tanzania. My family lived in Tanzania when, you know, my father had been in politics. So when Idi Amin, and some people may still remember that name, seized power in Uganda in the 1970s, my family had to leave Uganda in a hurry. So that's why I did my high school in Tanzania. And that's why I developed my film, my love for film as well. And reading, of course, I spent a lot of time in the library uh, reading books, um, writing and thinking I might, you know, write books my, myself one day, but also maybe make films. So at some point when I was ready to, uh, I wanted to come to the U.S. because obviously the U.S. is renowned for filmmaking. Uh, everybody around the world knows that. So then my father said, well, if you can find money to pay for it, you know, good luck. Uh, that's not a serious profession. <laughs> so I ended up not studying film. I went to Syracuse where I studied economics. But really, my love was always writing and also the news. My father used to make me go and buy him the newspaper. Whenever the first edition came out, Tanzania, they have a paper also called the Daily News. So remember it would come out like, I think, 11 p.m. And I, at that time, I was like, maybe... 11 or 12, I would go out to the newsstands, get him the first edition. But before I took it to him, I would read through the papers. So I was always interested at an early age about what was happening around the world, you know, politics and history. Uh, For example, I was uh, uh, rooting for uh, the Vietnamese to, you know, to uh, to win and defeat uh, United States imperial power. And at that time, I was like, you know, maybe 11 or 12. So I followed the Vietnam War closely. And that was my initial close association to U.S. uh, global imperialism. So when I came to Syracuse, I studied economics. But as I said, my love was always the news and writing. I found myself writing letters to the editor (laughs) all the time, uh, complaining about how Haiti was covered, how Africa was covered, how South Africa was covered. And then at some point, my friends convinced me, said, listen, why, rather than shouting from the outside, why don't you become a participant? So I went back to school. I went to the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia. I studied the one-year master's program in journalism. And since then, I've uh, been in journalism. I started out freelancing for uh, the New York Times and doing Metro News, going to, they used to send me to the most um, Uh, how should I say, crime-ridden areas. Uh, I remember back in the day when the crack epidemic was huge, so there was a lot of uh, incidents of crimes in certain neighborhoods. And I found myself covering that, going at really um, odd hours, uh, deep at night, trying to get these stories. Uh, And I started pitching. And back then, that
0: really really meant something, too. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. yeah, listen. going to dangerous areas in New York now is very different. Like, you, you can go to Brownsville late at night and see people extra yes. walking around. Uh, yes. Wow.
2: That's, yes, that's absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So, and I, okay, I'm glad you actually said that because I used to say, listen, you have to look like you actually live here if you're going to be walking here at like, you know, midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., you know? Yeah. Uh, you have to put yeah, yeah. being, being black alone, Being black alone is no guarantee. <laughs> no, it's no, black no black black guarantee. Black. Yeah. <laughs> so I actually found myself uh, walking. And uh, I mean, I hate to say this, but it was true. I walked with a brown bag and, I, you know, and people didn't notice that, you know, I didn't belong there, you know. But one day something happened. I went to cover, I forgot what incidents it was involving a shooting, involving a death. And I'm trying to get the story. And this young, maybe 13 or 14-year-old kid, he's riding his bike, and then he comes and he's looking at me. And then I said, hey, I started asking him some questions. Maybe he heard something, right? Hoping he might be a potential lead or lead me to a lead. And then he says, oh, 5-0? You're five o, right? And I'm like, what? I didn't know it was talking about. <laughs> he said, 5 I said, what? He said, you're a cop, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, no, of course not. Why would you say that? He said, come on, man. Everybody knows you're a cop. Everybody's talking about it. I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Look at your shoes." I was wearing like military-type black boots, <laughs> and he said, "He said, he said, he said, only cops wear that." And then I looked up, and I saw people like pulling curtains. You know, when I looked up, I said, "Oh man!" And they said, "Listen, if I'm you, I'm not going to go back the same way you came here. All right? So it's too late for that." So now what you got to do is pretend you're still looking for whatever story you're looking, but go in another direction because there's another train station that way, but they'll go back the way you came. And I follow these kids' advice. And after that, you know, I never took those late night assignments anymore at the New York Times. So that was the Times you And then I started pitching stories. I said, listen, it's not only crime that goes on in these communities. I want to try to find people that are doing interesting things, activists, let me profile them. Uh, Maybe uh, people that are starting their own businesses, let me profile them. And the editors would always say, yes, yes, of course, pitch it. I would pitch it. It was impossible to do that because I could not turn down the assignments to go to crime scenes, right? In order to create the time to do those, um, to do do those enterprise pieces that I was pitching. And as a non-staff Uh, freelancer, you know, I couldn't turn down assignments, see? So it was like a catch-22. Okay, it's good. The pay is good. And, you know, maybe you'll end up being on the Metrodesk staff one day. But then one day, I encountered a paper called The City Sun. It was published by this elderly um, uh, African-American brother in Brooklyn. And I read it and I was just blown away. The paper did some of the kind of investigative journalism that the old Daily News, I mean, um, the Village Voice used to do in the 60s and 70s when they'd have all these big names. And, but it was focused on, on stories that particularly impacted people of African descent. So I just fell in love with that paper. And I called the publisher. I said, listen, I want to work for you. He asked me how much I was making at the Times, the freelancer. I told him, he said, no way. I can only pay you a quarter of what you're making. I said, listen, in this profession, it's not always just about the money. The kind of journalism I want to do is the type you're doing of the City Sun. So I left the New York Times. Go ahead. I totally forgot about the City Sun. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, remember, I remember it as a kid, and
0: I haven't thought about it in years. There you years. go. I there forgot you go. That,
2: that it ever existed. Yes. When, did, when did it fold? It folded, when did it, fold? It, it folded in 1996. And I know that uh, because I was sitting there one day doing a story. And, you know, somebody barged in the office and, you know, very few. Well, I, I should say no, because there were few European Americans or white people that came into the office sometimes and they would have stories, too. You know, in fact, I may get back to that later. A couple of the ones I did that did not involve people of African descent. But this guy clearly was not there for a story. He looked very authoritative and authoritarian. He said, you, you know, you guys got to leave. So, what are you talking about? He said, This is the marshal. We're taking possession of the offices. And that was my last day at the City Sun. Uh, The publisher was elderly. And then when the paper started, you know, going through some financial struggles, you know, he had a couple of strokes and eventually passed away. And that's how the City Sun ended. But that's where I recall having some of my best uh, journalism, my most happy. Because there was two there was two big. Things.
0: And it's kind of weird. And I'm sure, Ken, I'm sure you've experienced this, too, about how black newspapers and black bookstores were big in the 80s and 90s. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Both even them, even you know, in um even I'm
1: here in Portland, even in Portland, black bookstores were huge. Yeah, they're all de- they're all gone. Basically, they're all You're gone. Separate. Yeah. They start selling yeah. online. They do more online stuff now. But they were all um those were places where I got I still have these books. I have majority of the books on my bookshelf from black owned bookstores uh, here in Portland, but they're all out of business now
0: and and the black bookstores were where i used to pick up stuff there, there were two big ones i remember it was city sun and amsterdam news amsterdam news i think still exists but i feel like it's more fringe than it used to be now because i think people uh get their alternative news from um the internet the village mm-hmm. voice the village voice and the new york press used to be interesting for like local news but local news in general is a dead thing and then black local news is even like, like even white local news doesn't really stand a chance anymore so right. you can imagine black black local news. But yeah, there was three things that I remember were great in the 80s and 90s that died and it's black-owned radio. And we talked about on this show uh why that happened it was the FTC decision that killed black owned radio. Black bookstores black bookstores were really highly investigated by the FBI. I, I only mm-hmm. found this out recently they used to be really bigly investigated by the FBI and then yeah black newspapers are are pretty much dead like Amsterdam news I feel like I never hear talked about anymore. I used to actually know black people who read Amsterdam news or you would read Amsterdam news yourself And I, yes, yes. So City Sun, I forgot about it literally until you just reminded me of it.
2: No, absolutely. And papers like the City Sun actually gave you the chance to do the stories then because and a lot of people don't realize that news is really what the editors decide to make the news. And what do I mean by this? They don't wake up one day and say, let me find out the most relevant things that are happening in the world that are impacting people around the world. And then let me cover them equitably and focus equitably so that every community can see that issues that impact them are covered. No, that's not how it happens. (laughs) So in terms of uh, what gets reported is what my particular assignment editor would send me to cover, you see. And this decision is made on a daily basis Amongst all the corporate media that set the world agenda, they determine what is going to be communicated in the news. That was then. Now that monopoly has been lessened because of the proliferation of online media outlets, you see? So you now you can hear news that generally would, uh, you would not hear because it would not be in the New York Times or on CNN or the Daily News or the Washington Times or the LA Post or the BBC, you see? So they used to monopolize the global narrative of issues. And even when they covered something that you thought they should cover, they would cover it according to how they want it covered. They would have their slant on it. And with the ongoing conversation we're having now today, a lot of this is being questioned, right? And the most topical issue, I saw the Washington Post did an article on uh, June on June, June 30th. And I think I sent you maybe a link to it. And now it's saying all these media outlets are reexamining their relationship with police departments. And it's putting it in a diplomatic way, you know, because they know that for many, many years, they've been serving like propaganda outlets for the police departments. Yeah, they, they're complicit. Absolutely. They're complicit. So now they're trying to like uh, you, know, you, know, you know, change your relationship? Come on, you know, don't, don't, don't even couch it in this, you know, finesse language. You know, at some point you're going to have to admit that many times you publish stories that your journalistic instincts told you could not have been true, but you were accustomed to doing it. You have a tradition of doing it. And that's why they did it. A lot of these journalists are very smart. I'm not able to, to be persuaded that they didn't know that the police was giving them a version of a story that could not be true. And yet they still went ahead and published it anyway. Why? Because they know there'll be no pushback. Often the communities that are impacted, like African-American communities, don't have that political economic muscle to push back. There's some communities that have organizations that just pick up the phone and call the editors of the New York Times, and you'll never see that community mistreated like that again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the one of the things also is when they put those stories, in, I don't. I can't and I can't remember the last time they actually printed the truth when it comes to police killings or or racism. They always point it. They always print it in a slanted way to where even uh, white people who aren't racist will cast doubt of exactly. what black people say. And that's what they're and I believe that's what the whole point of the propaganda is. They know that the racist white people ain't going to believe black people. It doesn't matter. But if they can cast doubt to those white liberals. Or white people that play the aisle, then all of a sudden they can they can get that story out there. And I, I remember seeing that with Trayvon Martin. With that story, is how they presented mm-hmm. the story. It was as if it will it cast doubt that you they don't want you to know who he is, right? You know, they right. did it with Michael Brown, right. exactly. You know, in in the in the white mind, they've already created an idea that Michael Brown was six foot nine, three hundred ninety pounds, um, and was going to grab Darren Wilson and pull him out of his car and choke him to death.
2: I'm glad you said that, because Darren Wilson used precisely that narrative. In his yes. testimony, he said Michael Brown gave him a demonic look. Think yes. about that. Yes. And members of the supposed grand jury are listening to this. And they're saying, yes. well, if I'm faced with a demonic guy, well, yeah, quite naturally, I'm going to want to defend my life. And, right. the, and in, in the case of both Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin, these papers actually carried articles about I think the New York Times said Michael Brown either dabbled in drugs or dabbled in marijuana. What's that got right. to do with, with a guy being publicly executed, you know, with his and hands then, up? What's it got
1: the to do? They say he dabbled in drugs and marijuana. Meanwhile, they've legalized marijuana in a lot of states and in flourishing, making money. You see pictures of white people having parties and about on yachts, and you know all these different kind of things. So when they put a black face on these things, they have to make it look a certain kind of way. And what they've done is they've convinced even some black people. Exactly. You know, you see you see black people online debating and arguing with the purpose of Michael Brown being killed or Trayvon Martin, and come up with excuses. I've even seen. Uh, black. It's, was it's, a, there it's, was black it's amazing. There was a guy that was um, I think he was a professor from Harvard. I can't remember what his name was, but he went through a whole thing of telling his son how to dress. All of a sudden, now and they're only gonna wear these certain clothes, and you know all these kind of things. You're they've created the fear has created a wardrobe for your children. Yeah, it was a black I can't remember his name oh, though, oh, but he oh, was- oh, oh oh wait,
0: wait um I remember an article, but I don't even remember if it was if this guy's from Harvard, but the guy who wrote I think Lawrence Otis who wrote Our Kind of People, Lawrence Otis Graham, I think he wrote some kind of article about about um telling the son how to dress and and i know he went to i know he went to harvard law school i think it might have been him uh lawrence otis graham he wrote this book called our kind of people about the black upper class which is actually a very good book as far as talking about uh the black upper class but it's, it's not it's not the best prose in the world it's kind of dry uh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I think this is the article. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Um, he wrote in the Washington Post, I think it was. But he went, he went to Harvard Law School. Uh, I taught my black kids that their elite upbringing would protect them from discrimination. I was wrong.
1: Uh, does that headline sound familiar? I'm th- I think, and he w- he also did a video. He actually created a video and had him and his son was probably I don't know ten, ten or eleven years old. Yeah.
2: And that's all crazy, you know,
1: show them th- what clothes they're going to be wearing. I
2: was like, this is really weird. Right, And you know why that's so crazy? Because now you have the victims actually sort of blaming themselves. Right. Maybe maybe I didn't speak right. Maybe I didn't dress the way that would protect me. And that's right. completely preposterous now. You know, the, the owners should not be upon the people that have suffered historically. <laughs> right. To be cast, right, right. to be blamed for the crime being perpetrated against them. But I can understand the logic of somebody wanting to do that, something like that. Because at the end of the day, you want your children to come home alive. You will go out of your way to do anything that you think will protect their lives. So I can understand that logic but it just shows you how sad and warped and upside down the whole narrative is. And these are, and these are highly educated people. Absolutely. This is the best of the best of the best, you know?
1: Yeah. This is a very educated man, but he even, he's helpless. What he's saying is I'm helpless against the system of white supremacy and the police. So this is the only thing I know how to do is blame myself and look, and literally blame my son who's 10 or 11 years old and can't wear a hoodie, you know? And he was, and he was, he had a story about how his son was racially profiled
0: and stuff. And, you know, and, and he thought that his education was going to, and his lifestyle was going to be a kind of like a, a almost prophylactic type of protection against white supremacy. He just kind of moved right. through the world uh, with almost like a force field against a right, lot right. of uh, the racism. And and yeah, I mean, that book is very interesting because it's kind of frightfully honest as far as uh, his, elit- his elitism, which I like. It doesn't try to uh, overly en- ennoble it. Like, you know, he talks about how he even got like, a nose job and stuff. But 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 and that he felt kind of conflicted about getting the nose job, but at the same time he didn't feel like he was self-hating, you know, and and it was a, it was very interestingly honest and in, in a way that I I appreciated. In in some ways, it kind of horrified me too. But that I yeah, but then
2: you understand the mindset that is doing that, but it's, it actually is about internalized self-hatred, self-hatred to want to protect yourself, to want to improve your status in life. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking about South Africa. South Africa had something called the Population Registrar. I forget exactly when it was enacted, but during the apartheid regime, you know, apartheid officially Started, I believe it was 1948 in South Africa. And what it did was it categorized every race or ethnicity. So you had white, you had colored, and colored were people of mixed European and African ancestry, and then you had black. Uh, Indians were not classified in South Africa. They were not considered to be native to South Africa. So Europeans consider themselves native to South Africa, right? But so obviously the best jobs, the best living districts, the best education, the best opportunities in life went to Europeans, right? And then the next best went to so-called coloreds. And then at the bottom of the rung, Africans, Black South Africans. The population register allowed you to appeal your racial designation. So if, for example, you were classified as colored, you can actually get a lawyer and go to court and say, your honor, I was miscategorized. I'm actually European. I'm a white man. And you can argue. And I don't know what kind of test they did. You might win and you get upgraded. You become, quote unquote, a European. If you lost, well, you have to live with it. You are colored. For African, you could go to court and say, I am not an African. How dare you call me black? I'm actually colored. So you could argue, you could, I guess they take a look at you and you maybe your hair and you argue. And if you're upgraded, you become colored. So obviously this is developing self-hatred, right? Because now you're associating anything but black with opportunity to attain and to achieve in life. And this I just remember this again as you're talking about this individual having to do a nose job and saying it's not self-hatred. I can understand why he says he he feels it's not self-hatred. As far as he's concerned, he's trying to improve his condition in life. So in South Africa, you might use uh, uh, skin bleaching creams to get rid of the blackness, right? Because you want to be elevated and referred to as a colored and get all the benefits that come with being. Uh, associated with being a colored.
0: Yeah, in his mind it might just be pragmatism is what he's calling it. Absolutely. Answer, you know?
2: Absolutely. But think about what he's teaching his kids. <laughs> and how think about how his kids internalize that. Without realizing that they're negating their origin. But 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 also what in knows- those
0: are his kids getting, they're getting his genetic nose. He can't pass on
2: that, that, that
1: nose. So, so no. Like Michael, it's like it's like Michael Jackson, how people, they actually try to portray those kids, and I'm not trying to start no controversy, but they tried to portray those kids as his based on the way they look. And I'm like, I don't think they know Michael Jackson didn't always look like that. Yeah, yeah, exa- exa- exactly. Then bleaching exactly. his skin and then having kids and they look white. That's not how it works.
0: Yeah, that's not how genetics genetics works. So, so no.
1: what, what happens if your kid's
0: know that you got a nose job they look for for themselves in your face you know and right. they only see themselves in your pre-nose job pictures right
2: right right, <laughs> right. and the other thing is you can't turn them down when they come to you and they say dad I need that money to do that surgery too you know <laughs> right yeah yeah exactly Yeah. <laughs> I who, wanna be who like knows
0: him. he might even be nudging them toward them
2: himself you never know yeah. see that's a, see know. that's a sad thing with life you know and why is it that you even have to go through doing that think about that all right? Why can't you just love the way you look, love your so-called nappy hair, love your complexion, love it? You know, Malcolm X has a, a short, um, a short uh, commentary on that on YouTube. There are actually two. There's one called You Can't Hate the Roots of Your Origin Without Hating the Tree. Mm. Or, or I think it's like, You Can't Hate the Roots of a Tree Without Hating the Tree. And it's about five, six minutes. I always recommend that. You know, it's on YouTube. People can listen to that. And he says, you know, historically, the Europeans controlled Africa. So they always gave us the image of Africa as jungles, savages. And quite naturally, you and I wanted no association with Africa, or even to be referred to as having anything to do with Africa, or even black. We started to hate the shape of our ears, our nose, our hair. You know, we wanted that so-called fine hair. But he said one of the reasons why the nation of Islam actually grew. At that time, I think it was called the Black Muslim Movement. It grew very quickly was because of their celebration of their African heritage and culture. Because at the back of his mind, even as he's denying it, uh, the African American actually appreciates his heritage and his culture because everybody wants to know that they have a history and a culture and a heritage. And that, that's, a, I think it's a five or six minute commentary.
0: Uh, in- you know, this isn't a black thing. This is a Mexican uh, thing. But uh, Rita Hayworth, the uh, the glamour Hollywood star from like the '40s, a lot of people don't know that she was she was Mexican, and her real name is uh, Margarita Carmen Cansino. Ah,
2: interesting.
0: Yeah, her father was of Spanish descent, so he he was I think uh, European, but uh, in in Mexico. But her her. I believe her mother was Mexican, but if you look at her when she was young, she looked very... Very Mexican. Interesting. If you looked at her back in those days when she was famous as Rita as right. Rita Hayworth, I'm going to send right. the link. You can see it. You can see it in the, in the page. If you, if you if I, if you click the link that I just sent, you'll see her uh, when she was when she was Mexican, and she looked very very uh, different compared to how people know her now. But she had jet black hair. Wow! You know, everything
2: right? Amazing. And, and she looked yeah gorgeous. As a Mexican, but this was not the Hollywood, not the Hollywood, you know, (laughs) vision of what beauty should be. (laughs) Isn't that that's kind of like Raquel Welch, too. Raquel Welch is
1: Mexican. But back in the day, people thought she was white.
0: Yeah. But but, but listen, I I thought so, too. Yeah, yeah, but she's the kind of person, if you look at her, you can kind of, once you know, you can kind of see it, but right. Rita Hayworth, I, I I, sent a second link of post-transformation Rita Hayworth, and with her, it was really hard to tell, but um, uh, afterward, and also, I don't know how much physical change um, Raquel Welch did, I don't know if she naturally just kind of looked white and just ran with yeah. it, or if she actually did something, whatever, but this is what's
2: crazy about uh, Rita Hayworth. Wow, Rita Hayworth, the transformation right? is amazing. Yeah, it's the it's hair, amazing. the uh, makeup, and the lips. Oh wow! Listen to what
0: uh, Rita Hayworth had to do. Right, first she had to change change her name. She she came to America, and and, and this is how I know white people are amazing when it comes to uh, race because they know more about what makes you white than. Anybody they think it through they, they think it through to scary they think it through to very scary levels, right? Like like they have things that, that uh are deal are deal breakers and everything that you would never um even think of. Apparently her hairline was too Mexican. Wow. I did not realize there's such a thing as a white hairline versus wow. a, a non a non white hairline. So yes. so basically she had to have years of electrolysis on her forehead, painful electrolysis. Um, I I'm, I'm, I'm gonna send a link and if you go to this link, you can see her before and after to give her a bigger hairline.
2: This is amazing.
1: What was considered a Caucasian hairline.
0: So, so, so
2: thin,
1: we, they had to thin her hairline out.
0: Yeah, they had to kill the hair the, the roots of her hair in her hairline to give her what was seen as a, as a Caucasian Caucasian hairline. So she had a bigger squarer hairline as opposed to um, what you had before, which was a a a smaller, rounder Mexican hairline. And I was like, how do white people even think about or notice this stuff? You know, like...
1: uh, They know when you ain't white, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know... No, no, but you raise a very
2: serious issue. You actually do. Because this cannot be just a couple of guys sitting there and saying, listen, I like the script, but let's do something about this, uh, you know, potential casting, right? There must be... A person or persons who've actually studied this, you know, so called scientists. Absolutely. So, who are they hiring, you know, these so called scientists? That's a story I would love to actually somebody to do one day and dig out some of the names. Of some of these scientists that were consulting, right? Because these were really experts, you know. And it just came yeah, to my mind were as, as you're talking. Yeah,
0: there were a lot of thinkers and experts who specialize in this stuff of just constantly categorizing race and mm-hmm. races today. If you if you like hate follow, if you hate follow a lot of uh, these sites, they still like study these guys, like like Francis Galton, like a, a cousin I think of. Um, Charles Darwin, he did a yes. lot of writing about, you know, and different people the last lot of studies on what makes you, what kind of forehead, what kind of uh, cheekbones and whatever. Right. So right. that's kind of what makes it funny about these minorities trying to restyle themselves as looking more white. But a lot of white people, they're looking for things you haven't even thought of. To clock you. as Absolutely. Um, not, not white. Especially... Like, no, go ahead. Uh, no, but I, I, I was going to say, like, she um probably had some white input. It was two years of electrolysis. There's probably some white people in the studio who were telling her, look, that hairline is not working. This is not working. But if she was left to her own devices, she would have probably just tried to dye her hair and put some no. paint cream and still wondered why, what was not working or what was going on. Like, you know, like, I don't think we even have any idea of the amount of stuff they're looking for and, um you know thinking about when they're screening us for, for whatever, you know? Did she ever write about
2: that experience? What, you know, what she was thinking as she was being told to do all these things? I hope it's um, in some book or something she, she wrote, you know, unless... Of course, she signed something. They always make you sign something, right? <laughs> that I'll never discuss um,
0: this. Yeah, good good question. I mean, she had a really hard life. I mean, she died of Alzheimer's, but she had like a tr- kind of traumatic... I don't know why. Those old stars used to have really traumatic lives and stuff where she she, um, she um, was like kind of used by a lot of people. She was sexually abused by her father uh, first, that they say. Then she ended up like picked up by like a string of different older men. Like mm-hmm. uh, they call it a suitcase pimp sometimes where you have like a husband who's also kind of your manager. and. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. you know, like so so she so she had like um these older men that tried to try to pip. Pay- not literally pimp her out, but pimp her out in right. terms of uh her beauty or whatever. So right. she had this husband that was twice her age. And when she was 18, his name was uh Edward Judson. And I think he was he was a white guy. And mm-hmm. he de- decided he was gonna be like her her manager. So or special she had a six friend. month Yeah, exactly. You know, uh he basically married her, basically trying to uh get rich off of her and, and pimp her to Hollywood. And she had like a six-month contract with uh Fox, and all she was casting was bit parts playing mostly foreigners so you can always find her playing like some stereotypical like latina you know with a basket of fruit on her head stuff like that and and then uh the studio to make her sound less foreign changed her name to rita because her full name was margarita right then she signed a seven-year contract with, with columbia now, i always find her story very interesting this is why i know so and much tragic about, right and very tragic yeah tragic yeah i find too. it yeah i find it very uh interesting because i thought such an interesting testament about uh how whiteness is gate 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 kept you know and uh so then columbia pictures so she said there's a whole Whole brain trust of white people uh, trying to figure out what can we do? There's some, there's some, there's some. Like she's she's obviously beautiful enough to make it this far, but the whiteness is a problem. You know, you have to do something to, to get extra. So they said her hair was too thick. So the actual thickness of her hair was too much a problem. It was too dark, too curly. It dipped too far into her forehead. So she had to submit to two years electrolysis. But this is 1940s electrolysis. This is not lasers that they have today. Right. Like they can uh, <laughs> do things. This is brutal. It was, it was supposed to be yeah. very very painful. And yeah. just like just like when a stun when gun when when, when, they, when,
2: they, when they miss the target a few times too. <laughs>
0: Yep, probably. Uh, you had to kill each hair follicle one by one at the cost of
2: ten dollars per follicle. And she's yeah, thinking, and she's thinking, let me endure this because this is my potential big break. Let's think about that. Yeah, the that. payoff. The payoff. Yep. Yep. And, and you don't, and you husband, don't know when that payoff is going to happen.
0: Yeah, and the husband is uh, paid for it. He's pushing to do it. That's his investment. So now he really thinks he owns you. You know, but you know. So it took two years because it was so painful. You couldn't do it all in one shot. And ten dollars. I don't know what the amount was, but when they broke. Uh, how much it costs in today's dollars? I think it's something like hundreds of thousands or, or something. Oh, easily, yeah, yeah. In, in in today's in today's money, it's something that was a lot of a lot of money. But she ended up becoming Colombia's biggest star. You know, it's it's, it's, it's crazy. But picture that. I and mean, we think about black people. When you're black, you don't even have that option. If you're like no. I'm just <laughs> If, if, if no, if, if you're dark skinned <laughs> and black, all the so, practice surgery in the world, all the fade cream in the world, you're still gonna be clocked. You know, man. You
1: see what Sammy Sosa tried to do? He
2: right. bleached his whole skin, and right. he still looks black. He right. <laughs> just looks weird. That, yeah,
0: it doesn't. It doesn't
2: work. Yeah. And 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 it's so sad, man. Look at the guy. The guy, you know, is fine looking, and you know, look what he did to himself. I mean, it's so tragic. Yeah. But you have non-recognized names, millions of people globally that still use. Um, Skin bleaching cream. Yeah.
0: And the color because it gives you is weird. It does not look like Caucasian skin tone. It is this is weird jaundiced kind of weird? Fleshly color. look fleshly. Yeah, yeah. Uh there's there's the dance hall artist called Vibes Cartel, and he did that to himself. And the skin tone, that, that cake soap skin tone is just weird. It does not look Caucasian or black. You just look like fleshy, like you said, like like it it looks like raw chicken. It looks it just looks weird. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: And then the the chemicals, you know, you know they seep into your into your body, into your into your skin. And obviously, that's going to have uh, long-term consequences as you get older. But uh, that's the image of beauty that is so promoted, that is so advertised, that from a young age, uh, you can see, you know, young people thinking, hey, you know, why do I have to look black if I have an option, right?
0: Yeah, but, but also, do you even really have it? have an option? That, like, you'd have to look black. I mean, un- unless you're someone who's already kind of on the cusp and just kind of Creole, like, you'd have to look black or look like some weird Frankenstein <laughs> uh, version of whiteness that's not going to convince um, right. anybody. It's almost like a type of body dysmorphia. Like, at least with yeah. uh, Rita Hayworth, it's a disgust calculation to be forced into, but right. she can at least say, hey, when it was all said and done, you could not even tell that I was Mexican. It, it, it worked. But when you see, like, what Michael Jackson or Sammy Sosa <laughs> right. does, it becomes... was extra tragic because you've taken away your blackness and you've replaced it with something that that is not even whiteness or even biracialness. You just look weird.
2: And you're making a uh, political at some point statement too, whether you realize it or not, you know, because for us observing you, uh, what you're doing, you know, there's no other way to read it than repudiating or rejecting, uh, you know, blackness. And which also as I'm speaking, it reminds me of this uh, reporter for the Washington Post uh, Keith Richburg, and I think eventually became an editor. And uh, he's originally from uh, the uh, from the Caribbean, but he considers himself you know, African-American. And when he covered the war in in, in, in in Rwanda, the inter-ethnic massacres, and he wrote a magazine piece for the Washington Post. And he says, as I stood there watching the bodies floating on the Karugera River, I said to myself, you know, thank God my ancestors were captured and enslaved and taken out of Africa. Otherwise, there but for the grace of God go I. And so I thank God for taking my ancestors into slavery. He wrote this in the magazine piece and eventually repeated it in his book. And when I saw that piece, I saw, you know, this is going to end up becoming a, uh, a book. And also said to myself, there's no way would the editors of The Washington Post publish something like this. Had it not been written by a person of African ancestry, um, yeah, I mean it's obviously something the editors, the people that control that establishment, wanted to say. Uh, but it's better said by a black person because then it insul- insulates them against any accusation that you're, you know, peddling white supremacy and racism. You know. But then I was asking myself, go ahead.
0: I'm say, there was a comedian called Gerard Gerard Carmichael who uh, made a similar joke. I used to like his show. He, I used to like his show and stuff on NBC and they had like David Allen Greer and some other stuff. And and then I um saw this joke that he did. Uh he, he was like very popular with uh white people and was getting a show and everything and and I tried his show and I tried his stand up and one of his stand up things was he was saying, you know, thank uh, you know, the plus sides of slavery. Um, I would be in Africa right now. Mm-hmm. Can you picture that Africa? And you're saying this to right. a white audience. Yep, um, yep, yep, yep. And and they're and they're laughing. And I'm like, okay, that's a bad joke to any audience right. for, for, forget right. forget whether they're white or not. You know, but I'm like, first off, I don't think it would work with the black audience, thank, thankfully. I, I, I don't think it I don't think it would. But on on top of that, I think he knows better to, to do that. Like the extra ickiness was the calculation of doing it in front of the white audience, but the white audience was um, you know, really cracking up. And and to to, to go to what you're saying, right? Oh, this is what you said. He said he said, um, he says that the negative parts of the Americas racist legacy are worth accepting because we're not for slavery and, and this is a quote I would be mm. in Africa right now Africa mm. are you mm. are you hearing what I'm saying to you like <laughs> they have a, they have AIDS they have AIDS there because they so said that right. to a white audience they have AIDS there as if they don't right. have AIDS in America but, you know but um, right, right. yeah or other parts of the world but yeah so I said they have AIDS there and the white audience was laughing but if it was a white person that said that they wouldn't laugh if, if a white person right. said hey black people should be happy you know if it wasn't for slavery they'd be in Africa they have AIDS there the, the, the white audience would be horrified uh, performatively you know right even if they even if they believe it deep down but when a white when a black person says it like you said that the Washington post has him there to say things that they believe but can't say themselves absolutely yeah And you know, he got promoted i
2: mean he got his book he got the major publisher sure. to, you know oh, oh, sorry, that book. guy yeah sorry yeah yeah so, but in so terms he of, got a book he got oh a book. yeah he got a he got a book by the uh same title what was it i think it was called not not out of Africa, <laughs> a, 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 a black man confronts Africa, something like that, you know. So I think it was just being used as a, as a cudgel, as a tool, you know, to bash Africa to the way some Euro, Eurocentric minds wanted to do, but using him as a convenient outlet. And, you know, it's sad because he, this is a smart person. I think he went to some of the best schools and to end up at a major paper like the Washington Post to allow himself to be exploited like that. And it also shows a profound lack of knowledge of history, because if you look at it, take China, for example. And I I, I wasn't familiar with this term, but a friend of mine, um, the late Les Payne, who was a great journalist, actually, won a Pulitzer Prize when he was uh, with Newsday, you know, he's a black reporter. And he said, back in the day, when something seemed so hopeless, they would say, you haven't got a Chinaman's chance in hell. You know, in other words, your odds completely zero of succeeding. And that was a really well-known term back in the day. You haven't got a Chinaman's chance. That was the old China, right? The China that was identified with poverty, uh, illiteracy, you know, backwardness, starvation. But look at China today. And this transformation happened when China took control of its resources, right? It kicked out the Europeans that were exploiting China and started using its own resources to build up China. Now, today, China, nobody can make that that kind of joke about China again. And obviously, Africa as a continent, as individual countries can do the same thing. They've not been able to accomplish it. They don't use Africa's immense. So look at it. How can you have the richest continent at the same time having the world's most impoverished people at the same time? The explanation is simple. They don't use Africa's resources for the benefit of Africa. It's still being exploited by the outside world. Once China ended it, for China, China became a superpower. And that's what Africa needs to do. And then you wouldn't have a person like Keith Richburg writing something like that. He'd be like, oh, I want to get to Africa, (laughs) you
0: know? There was a Chinese ambassador that was uh, some kind of official who was using like uh, their clout and their their, their uh, economic and financial clout to call out a lot of messed up racism that American officials officials, American journalists were doing. And you know I think it really burns up um, white people, people that they used to uh, think of as as less than are now able to push around their weight, which is why it's so funny about the Hong Kong um, protests and riots and all this stuff. they're getting mad at LeBron James. And you know they're they're like, uh, hey LeBron, why don't you talk about what's happening? They don't know anything what's happening in Hong Kong or China. No, they don't at all. They just hate the idea that China is able to tell white American people what they can and can't do. And they see like a white rich institution like the NBA uh, holding its tongue or whatever because some uh, non-white people uh, told them what what to do like they don't care about the injustice but it's like you said like it would be great if um african countries including the ones with oil or other resources were able to kind of do do the same thing uh, to to white people but it doesn't really happen that way like, like you said and i want to get some more of your thoughts about about that like you know is it is it is it corruption is it the outside forces of the cia or, or the or it's West a combination
2: yeah it's a combination um uh, what because first of all, the Europeans are very smart when it comes to exploitation. They may have their own issues uh, amongst them, but when it comes to exploiting certain peoples, they're on the same page. So, for example, Europe has fought so many world, so many wars historically. The ones that we know very well, of course, World War One and World War Two were. At the end of the day, it's made at 60 million people dying, right? But when it came to colonizing Africa, they actually had a meeting yeah, the Berlin Conference, 1884-85, uh, where it was presided over by uh, Bismarck. They called him the Iron Chancellor. And the major countries, imperial countries, Britain, France, Belgium, Germany, uh, Portugal, the late commerce later on were Italy, uh, you know, Spain, and all of them partitioned the continent. They said you get this you get that so that they won't have to fight amongst themselves right and this is after formal slavery was being abolished and ending in, in other parts of the world including here in the united states so now they came up with a new form of slavery colonialism that's essentially what it was it was a, a version of like slavery light although in the case of the congo it was no difference it was actually worse than some form of plantation slavery because in the congo King Leopold of the Belgians ended up killing about 10 million Congolese. But anyway, they set up their colonial regimes, right? They had the white European colonial governors and they had their regime exploiting Africa's resources, the plantations, forcing Africans to become markets uh, for manufactured goods from Europe, right? And then when it became part of decolonization around the 1960s, they left the system intact. What they did was they allowed Africans to become presidents, to become prime ministers, to become government officials, right, ministers of finance, minister of foreign affairs, minister of economic development and all that kind of stuff. That's the system they set up. And that system still exists today in pretty much every African country. So instead of having European governors, now these African so-called leaders (laughs) are actually fulfilling the same interests of the former colonial powers, you see? So, and that's why the country remains impoverished. You mentioned the issue of corruption, yes. They will tolerate it so long, I mean the European former colonial powers and now the United States too, and now China. They tolerate it so long as the interest of the outside world is not upset. So let me give you the most extravagant example of corruption. In the Congo, his name was Mobutu and he was in power for 37 years and he killed the country's uh, first prime minister. His name was Patrice Lumumba, who was really... Malcolm X was a big fan of his. Malcolm X led so many protests, you know, uh, uh, against the U.S. establishment after Lumumba was killed in 1960 because Malcolm could see that this is the kind of leader who would take Africa in the right direction, not only kick out the Europeans, but then make sure that the resources of the country is used to benefit the country. So they killed him. The West, the CIA and Belgium. They killed Lumumba, and they put Mobutu for 37 years. Mobutu stole $5 billion from the Congo, but he he was invited pretty much by every U.S. president to visit the White House. So these are the kind of leaders they want. So long as the relationship that was set up at the Berlin conference is not upset, they're cool with that. Africa remains a seller of primary Uh, products, they call it, right? Like the gold, the oil, the uh, timber, uh, some agricultural commodities, Uh, coltan, coltan, which is found in pretty much every cell phone and computer in the world. And now what is the other product? The one that you use for, for car batteries, because that's becoming a big thing now. And that is mostly found in one country in Africa, in the Congo, right? But they're not used to manufacture the products in African countries. They're sold as as primary commodities. And once they're used to manufacture the products in these industrial countries, including Europe and United States, they sell it back to African countries at an inflated price. So that's the kind of relationship that China also had with the West. But then China took control of its government, its sovereignty, and China was able to transform over a 40-year period. And that's what African countries will not be able to, to, to accomplish yet. But the younger generation in Africa, they're much more savvy. They know uh, what's going on uh, in other parts of the world. For example, right now, they're following the uprisings in the United States uh, since the killing of, uh, of, uh, of George Floyd. They're very familiar with the role that young people can, change, can, can play in changing governments. So my own, my own hope and my belief, actually, is that once this new generation of young leadership take hold in African countries. Like there's uh, Julius Malema, you may have heard of him in South Africa. Uh, you know, people, people say, say, you know, he seems to be uh, reckless or what have you. But if they listen carefully to what he's saying, he's saying the things that many people of his generation are saying. How can we be so rich and yet so impoverished at the same time? It means we are not using our resources to benefit our people. So once you have his generation come into all these countries, I think this narrative will start changing in African countries. And africa may end up doing what china did use its resources and eventually be able to compete with the west and the united states let me give you one final example in 1959 the per capita income of ghana in west africa was double that of china i think it was around 198 dollars per capita china i think was not even 90 80 something i think or maybe 90. just think about that and yet today China's per capita income is around four to five times that of Ghana's, and Ghana is one of the better-performing African countries, right? So, just so, so I told you, I, I say this to say that it can be done. China did it; Africa can do it as well.
0: Something that is very interesting with the Pan African um, movement in Africa, like Pan African Pan Africanism, is something that you know I think is still popular in the diaspora. But I think it's probably worked uh, or taken root the most in America. I think mainly because it's kind of hard Black Americans to, to develop a type of competing national sense of nationalism, since there's a feeling that you're a you don't really have a state, you know. In America, right. really, you're kind of like a people within the people, whereas yes. I feel like in the diaspora, it's a lot easier to be like, why should I be Pan-African? I'm Haitian first, I'm Jamaican first, I'm Ghanaian first, I'm Nigerian first. So, like, even someone like uh, Marcus Garvey, he couldn't right. really get Pan-Africanism popping off in Jamaica. You know, right. the, the climate wasn't really good for it, but he found, like, in America, like, the soil, it was able to take roots a lot... Uh, Better over there. And uh, despite that, there was like that moment in Africa where pan Africanism really seemed like uh, it was going to uh, happen. Uh, and the CIA kind of, you know, yes. different foreign powers kind of um, crushed it. But I kind of want to get your uh, take on that that moment uh, when it started uh who was on the people like like I think Kwame Nkrumah was one of, yes, uh, of course. those those voices too right like right. yeah if you can if you can just tell us about that that moment and that was the moment that kind of really got Malcolm X excited when he made his his, his organization after the the Nation of Islam what you know the black muslims was pan, pan-africanism and like like the history of that moment and how it was derailed and crushed and if you think there's still like a sense of that, because Julius Malema sounds right. li- like he's part of that tradition. Absolutely. Now, the, the revival, a, right. Anom- yeah. Anomaly or not.
2: Right. Yeah. He's actually the revival. And he's using that because he realizes that Africa can really realize its full potential when it becomes a united continent uh, instead of these uh, 54 different countries. Right. So he's reviving. Pan-African is becoming it's resurging amongst young people in African countries. They feel much more interconnected now. Many of the burdens that the older generation, the leaders that came uh, after independence in the 1960s, many of those burdens are dissipating now because young people are seeing that, listen, you know, we don't want to remain these individual weak countries exploited. There's potential in African unity. And that is part of the reason why they're thinking in a very pan-African outlook. But you're absolutely correct. In fact, Kwame Nkrumah, who... uh, was the first prime minister of Ghana after Ghana won its independence from Britain in 1956. Uh, he was actually inspired toward his Pan-Africanism when he lived in the United States, and he was, because he went to uh, Lincoln University here in the United States. And he was inspired by the lessons of Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey, the only reason why Pan-Africanism did not take root in Jamaica was because the colonial authorities, the British, did not want it to take root because they could see that as something that would mobilize Jamaicans and unite them in their anti-colonial struggle, which means colonialism in Jamaica and other Caribbean countries would have ended much more earlier. So they saw Marcus Garvey as a real threat. And I haven't read it, but I would not be surprised. In fact, I am convinced that they played a role in the U.S. uh, instigating these charges that uh, ended up getting Marcus Garvey locked up. Uh, so Kwame Nkrumah was inspired by Marcus Garvey. Malcolm X's uh, family, his parents, were Garveyites, so he also grew up from that Garveyite environment. And other Caribbean leaders like uh, George Padmore, like C.L.R. James, these were and uh, and from here W.E.B. Du Bois. They were the initial uh, intellectual uh, intellectual advocates for Pan-Africanism. And basically they saw that, you know, when, first of all, when you refer to people of African ancestry as minorities in the United States, that's a a misnomer that it doesn't make sense considering they are part of a global majority. So that was one argument psychologically for Pan-Africanism. But then the other argument was the economic aspect, of course, that if these countries are able to unite together and use their resources for their own benefit, they would not need to get any assistance from Europe and they would no longer be exploited by European countries. And the concept worked in Ghana where it was put to test. When Kwame Nkrumah went there after he finished his education here in the United States, he lived, he was in London for a while and then he went back to Ghana. And the Ghanaian elite who had grown up in the British colonial system, At some point, some Ghanaians were able to go to uh, law school, become lawyers. But their mindset was still, we want to get rid of the European colonials at some point in the future, right? (laughs) And then we'll take over the the leadership when we are ready. But Nkrumah said, no, we're ready now. And we are Pan-Africans. We're going to bring everybody thinking I'm not uh, from one ethnic group in Ghana, but we are collectively Ghanaians and collectively, Africans. And that resonated. So he quit that party that had invited him to be their leader, and he formed his own party. And he preached independence now and pan-Africanism. And that's why he became the country's first prime minister. And obviously, the European establishment, the old colonial power, saw that as a, a real threat. And eventually, they engineered the overthrow of Kwame Nkrumah in 1966. He was kicked out. Malcolm X, by the way, met Kwame Nkrumah. Malcolm went to to a couple of African countries, including uh, Ghana. And Kwame Nkrumah was one of the leaders that Malcolm was most impressed with because Kwame Nkrumah was also advocating. uh, Whenever he came, I think there was one time he came to Harlem, and I think there was a New York Times article about, I I forget when the article was published, but you can look it up, and they were saying, they were talking about how Kwame Nkrumah was talking about pan-African unity and encouraging uh, people of African descent in the United States to come back to Ghana and help build uh, Ghana and other African countries. And that resonated with the people that Nkuma was speaking to. But now to go to your part, how was Pan-Africanism? First of all, why was it undermined? It was undermined for the obvious reason was that it it was one thing that Africans uh, and people of African descent, not only around the world, but obviously in Africa itself, could unite around one cause. We are Pan-Africans and we're gonna, we want to get rid of the empire. So that's why they had to eliminate this threat. And how did they do it? Well, I spoke earlier about how in the case of Congo, uh, Lumumba was overthrown only after he was in office for three months. They won their independence June 1960. By September, he was overthrown by the coup engineered by the CIA and the Belgian intelligence. And then January 1961, executed by firing squad. And this is just a quick aside, by the way. A lot of of people know this, but uh, Dave Chappelle's mother, who's a highly educated lady with a PhD, she heard Malcolm speak. I'm sorry, she heard Namuba speak when he was in Holland. And she was so uh, inspired and convinced that she actually left the U.S. and worked for him in the Congo until he was assassinated. And then he turned back. I mean, uh, Deschapelles doesn't talk a lot about this, but that's where he gets a lot of his uh, Pan African uh, outlook and his, I believe, his intelligence from, in fact, from his mother. So that was in Congo. And then I just gave you the example of how they got rid of uh, um, Krumah in, uh, in Ghana. And then much more recently, in the 1980s, they got rid, rid of Thomas Sankara in a country that had been called Upper Volta. And when he uh, came into power in 1980, Uh, Three, he changed the name to Burkina Faso. He says, why do we need this colonial name? This is the land of the upright people. So he changed the country to Burkina Faso. And he was in his 30s, his young, uh, very brilliant and inspiring person. And he said, listen, if you want any evidence of imperialism, just look at your plate. If your plate is containing food imported from outside, that's imperialism. You cannot say you're independent if you depend on somebody else for your food, something that sustains you. So he revolutionized Burkina Faso within three years because he said, listen, our ancestors were growing food before the Europeans came. So why are you now importing food from France, right? The former colonial power. Within three years, Burkina Faso was food independent and sufficient. Within three years, they built their own railroad without any foreign assistance. They just rolled up their sleeves and did it. Within one year, they had started to combat desertification by planting 10 billion trees. In other words, he taught them that, listen, you can do a lot for yourself. But the problem is you have this neocolonial mentality and you think only the Europeans and the former colonial powers can do for you. And let me make one quick point, and then I'd like to get your own reaction as well. Why he was eventually eliminated was he... Touch the third rail. And what do I mean by this? There's an annual meeting of all the African countries. At that time, the organization, it was called the Organization of African Unity. Now it's called African Union. It's been superseded. And he went to that meeting in Ethiopia. It was in 1987. It was either in June or July. I believe it was July. And he told all the African leaders, he said, listen, one major thing that is holding us back in terms of development is the foreign debt. The billions of dollars we owe to these foreign countries, banks and foreign countries. Some of these debt we inherited at the time of independence. So just think about how outrageous that is. Some Europeans have been governing you for decades. And then at the time of independence said, oh, by the way, when we were governing this country, we took out some loans, <laughs> right? And now we want you to pay for it. So he says, that's why we've never really had a clean plate to develop. You know, and somebody can understand in this country, like a parent saying, listen, son, listen, daughter, I took out all these loans, you know, to benefit you, even though you were still my ward. But now that you're independent, I expect you to pay all these debts. So I'm giving that simple comparison so people can think about it as an individual basis. Now think about it collectively for all the African countries. So Sankara, Thomas Sankara said, let's renounce this debt so we can start afresh and have some money to actually develop our countries and let's cut off this dependency but if i do it alone i won't be alive to attend next year's annual meeting of the organization of african unity but if we do it collectively there's no way can they assassinate 54 african presidents so please so support this venture and you know there's a very interesting actually youtube There's a documentary about him, and it has that clip on YouTube as well. He says, support this. You can see African leaders nodding with him in agreement and clapping as he's saying this. But when it came time to show up, none of them supported him on this proposal that he was presenting. And guess what? He was right in his prediction. Not only did he not live to attend the next year's conference, he was dead by October of the same year. They had his best friend. Uh, named Blaise Kampare, shoot him in cold blood and bury him in a mass grave, shot him with about a dozen of his closest compatriots, and just buried him in a mass grave like a dog. And that was the end of it. And that coup d'etat and assassination was, of course, backed by the French, because they saw, they said, this idea that Sankara is spreading in Africa. If you had 54 Sankaras saying, let's get rid of this foreign influence and let's use our resources, to benefit Africa, first of all, it would transform Africa's economies within 20 years. They'll probably achieve what China did in 40 years, within 20 years. Why? Because Africa has much more resources than China. And now the technology is much more available. You know? And that's why Thomas Sankara was killed. And that's why the threat of pan-Africanism has always been a very real threat. And Malcolm realized the power of pan-Africanism. And that's why he was going to meet all these African leaders, he wanted them to do one thing. He said, so long as we see our domestic struggle in the US as a civil rights struggle, we're always at the mercy of Uncle Sam, as he put it. But this is a human rights struggle. Let's take it to the United Nations so all the countries of the world can condemn it and put pressure on the US. And who can introduce it to the UN? African presidents, because they get the podium. And he was beginning to convince African leaders and they took him seriously. When he went to the Organization of or African meeting, a conference in Cairo in 1964, he met all these leaders. He wrote a memorandum of, to all the African presidents and they got him to, they, they, they listened to him, right? They gave him the, the podium so they could listen to him. And um, it's so fascinating because I'm reading all of this, even as we, uh, in our contemporary era, because uh, about four years ago, I was doing some research in the Schomburg Library And I made all these copies of Malcolm's papers in his archives. And now, you know, during this lockdown, now, finally, (laughs) I have time to start going through these papers. I have about five huge folders with Malcolm's papers, his thoughts and his correspondence with these leaders and his impression of each of the leaders that he met. And it's fascinating to just uh, read that Malcolm realized the potential of making that strong bond and connection between uh, uh African Americans and between uh, Africa in the 1960s. Thomas
0: Sankara is one of the lesser known ones. I think out of out of the ones that I know about, uh he's one, he's the one that I know the least about. Uh do you remember yes. by any chance the name of the documentary? Because I'm, I'm I'm gonna look it up on, on YouTube. It's actually
2: called The Upright Man. Thomas Ankara the Upright Man. Alright
0: y'all so